0: philosophy is an odd thing
1: i'm going to talk to you tonight about belief specifically the problem of religious belief remember jesus said i have not called you servants i have called you friends the purpose of human existence is to serve god so either this god doesn't exist or he's not very good why is he letting us suffer like this there is no particular
2: Socratic or Nietzschean or Kantian way to live your life. When
1: I say that apart from theism, life is a, is meaningless, I mean objectively meaningless.
2: Hello and welcome to the next joint installment of the Freed Thinker podcast and the Skeptics Testament. I'm your host, Nicholas Joseph Brzezzi, and joining me this episode are Tyler Vella. Hi, how are you? And Brandon, who is called Christ, I mean Christian.
1: Hello everyone. <laughs>
2: That thousands of years from now right the the last line that i just said will be disputed by atheists and theists both sides will argue either it was an interpolation and that <laughs> i never said brandon was the messiah or it was a part of the original so how how is everybody doing
1: i'm doing fantastic Doing pretty well yeah
2: okay all rested i up literally just
1: found out i'm the christ how would you feel <laughs>
2: pretty good so we're here to record the second half of tyler's episode on his current worldview and i did leave out re-record but tyler went and put it on his facebook so i guess it's there for the world to see that i ruined the second half of the last recording we did so yes this is a re-recording of that episode um because of my uh blunderous uh fingers i guess they just uh must have accidentally deleted the second half of the last episode. So, you're forgiven. Um, thank you. Before and and you can do that because you are called Christ. So before we do that, I must make mention of a comment by another Christian apologist who prominently appears on the Facebook page, Wayne Harnett, who, um, after listening to our previous joint episode, had to say this. I'm just going to read his comment. I want to jump in on the latter part of the discussion in which Tyler was arguing that even psychopaths exhibit signs of moral knowledge, or as he put it, guilty knowledge, which exists apart from guilt feelings. In terms of supporting the notion of the presumption of objective morality, I think this might be more clearly illustrated by how even a psychopath reacts when sinned against. A psychopath might not experience guilt feelings, but from what I understand, they have no problem whatsoever in feeling a sense of outrage and injustice when someone sins against them. This betrays a level of moral knowledge that does exist in their thinking and seems to be common to all humanity in its in all circumstances, well-conscious circumstances anyway. Sorry, he put that last bit half in brackets. Um... The other thing to note is to go back to an opening comment, which was that a natural explanation of moral knowledge does not tell us anything positive or negative about its truth value. When natural moral knowledge was being discussed in relation to psychopaths who featured prominently in the discussion, the concept was challenged on the grounds that this moral knowledge could have been passed on by natural means. But the existence of natural law, that is, a natural knowledge of morality, does not require that this knowledge originate from non-natural sources, somehow directly from God, only that it is universal, hence supporting the notion of universal presumption of objective morality. And observation of how people interact and respond, I think he means an observation rather, of how people interact and respond does, I think, support this notion of universality. I would want to add, though, that in terms of the significance of the universal presumption of morality, I don't think anything is changed even if there was the occasional occurrence of someone without this presumption. Most people see shapes with our eyes, and it convinces us that those objects objectively exist out there in the universe. The existence of the occasional blind individual doesn't change that conclusion. So yeah, I was just saying that, admittedly, after that example of um, how a psychopath reacts when sinned against, it is a bit harder, because I mean, basically, myself and Brandon's objection was was that, well, they don't... Um, they may um, exhibit guilt, but how do we know that that guilty knowledge isn't just based on the circumstance that they've put themselves in, right? They're in an orange jumpsuit in front of a media have, uh, and a judge having to answer for their actions, which inherently biases the situation, right? It's it's immediately telling them, everybody thinks I've done something wrong, right? So um, that could influence how they act. And and it could influence this idea of moral knowledge being objective, right? Because in that case, it wouldn't be objective at all; it would be absolutely subjective. But um, but Wayne's essential point, essential uh, argument against that was, or or he pointed out, was that even they do exhibit this this idea of of um moral knowledge when they've been sinned against, right? They feel this you know, like we all do when we're cut off in traffic. We feel like this is a personal slight on us, that this is an injustice, and that this is probably more universal. I can't think of a, of, of a situation where uh, somebody would be sinned against who would say, oh, that's fine, right? You know, they might do it one or two times depending on the circumstances. If it's like somebody cutting in front of them in line, they might not say something. But if it's this real you know, horrendous sin against, you know, that would cause a psychopath to commit murder. Right. So um, in that case, I think that that is, is far more universal than say somebody being, and a lot harder to deal with. If I were, I I don't think I could argue the same thing that it it was um, the uh, observations that they made from their circumstances that made them feel that way.
1: I think it's trivial. And I think that it doesn't really reflect the type of morality we're talking about.
2: Because because it's more of an injustice, right? Well, so when somebody's sinned against, it's not the um, objective moral knowledge that they're exhibiting. It's more, hang on, this is a slight on my personal self, right? This is um, the unfair, way I see it... somehow unjust.
1: The way I see it is it's a lot more like that. I mean, it's not, you know, say you've got a psychopath who's driving down the car from his latest killing and uh, someone cuts him off and he flips them off and, you know, calls them a bugger and says, you know, I'm really pissed off that they cut me off. And number one, it's strange that he's speaking to himself in such jilted terminologies. I'm really pissed that they cut me off. But it's also in absolutely no way surprising or I think really insightful to anything other than we exist as individual entities with preferences and dispositions. Just as, say, you know, a lion or a lioness, we don't talk of them having any sort of idea of universal morality. But if you were to kick one in the shins, it would certainly get rather mad if you were to right. kill a lioness's cubs, she would exhibit symptoms of what we might call uh enragement and or depression. I don't know, I'm really not an expert on lions, so I guess I probably shouldn't have started talking about them. But, you know, we wouldn't suddenly say, Well, it looks as though lions are keyed into the universal moral facts more or less the same way we are. It's a very basic kind of animal reaction against a slighting against of one's preferences and dispositions. Now that doesn't automatically disprove Wayne's point. And I think it really just brings us back to sort of a neutral zero point wherein we can't look at the, at the fact that a psychopath would get annoyed if you cut him off in traffic because he has his own subjective preferences and dispositions that lead him to be irked when someone frustrates those preferences and dispositions. Uh, We can't look at the fact that he'd be annoyed and from that extrapolate out to something as fantastic as he, like the rest of us, is keyed into this metaphysical, uh, external, moral substrate of of right and wrong that is built into the very fabric of reality. I think that is one or two leaps too far.
0: Yeah, well, so... Um, one of the reasons why, when I was talking about guilty knowledge, I didn't want to go into this, is because a lot of this is more the critique of subjectivism than it is for than it is uh, a defense of objectivism. Um, but I, th- I think, you know, just while we're on this little soiree for a second, um, I think that there is a fundamental difference that we're talking about between when we're saying, well, there's a the lioness kind of. Um, over and against. And I think that the cutting off of traffic might just be too trivial of an example. Um, And the common one, even though it's, you know, what is it? What is it? Meyer's law or whatever it is that the Holocaust gets brought up in in every blog post or whatever. uh, When we look at something like the Holocaust, we're not saying, Oh, well that just goes against our social preferences. We're saying, no, 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 that's, that's actually something really, really um, wrong. They actually had, there, there was more than just a social preference against it, especially when you're talking about, well, what society? So, you know, you might have had the 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 Nazi, you know, sub society that was totally fine with it. So is it was it not immoral for them to actually do it? And if it wasn't immoral for them to do it, why should we stand outside of that society and say it is immoral to do it? Because we're actually saying there's something ontologically wrong with that. They had a real obligation not to. They were actually wrong in their preferences. Um, it didn't accord with with what we know of moral facts. Um, whereas when we look at a lion, say, taking out, um, you know, going after the sick and the weak gazelle, we don't say, oh, well, that's that's ageism or, you know, that that's that's cruel oppression. We go, no, that's that's, you know, that's the animal kingdom. That's, you know, they're, they're killing. They're not murdering. Um, we just have fundamentally different concepts. And so um, when when we go into more of the nihilism and the subjectivism, I'm sure we'll talk a lot about that. Um, but but ultimately,
2: but I, I think I'm sorry, I think what brandon's saying though is that that doesn't translate into the same as agitating a lion, and then it takes its its agitation out on you right
1: if i may yeah. um i mean i think whenever we look at something like the holocaust and a subjective criticism or a criticism of subjectivism gets brought up with regards to it i don't i have yet to encounter one that actually works i mean they're all really good for kind of knee-jerk oh my god that's awful reactions and it's all really you know uh, it's good at making someone who's just a subjectivist feel really uncomfortable with what they view as being their observations about the way the world actually is that is sans objective external moral laws but really i think it slides out of subjectivism for a subjectivist to say well Those Nazis really do believe what they're doing is right, so I guess I can't, you know, do anything to stop them or be offended because it turns the idea that there are no universal moral laws into a sort of quasi-universal moral law that necessitates that because of that fact, no one who is enlightened should then act on their personal moral presumptions. It kind of provides a stifling effect. In reality, if we treat subjectivism sans universal moral laws for what it really is, I think we wind up with individuals that are internally self-justified in taking up their actions. So you have someone who looks at the Holocaust and goes, Objective moral laws be damned, I know that I find that intrinsically disgusting by my very nature, and it's also within my nature to want to stand against and oppose that ideology. And, I mean, we can debate about, like, where that person's preferences would have come from versus where the Nazis' preferences would have come from. But, you know, being in a universe sans moral laws, it wouldn't remove in any way the ability for someone who's horrified with these kind of shock value examples like the Holocaust. It wouldn't remove from them the ability to have internally justifiable Uh, actions that they would take against those kinds of things like rape or the Holocaust or murder, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then on what NJ said, I mean, he's, he's right. I'm not really talking so much about the natural instinct to protect the cubs. I'm talking about how some animals have even been observed engaging in what can only be described as mourning or post, um, uh, post death depression whenever they lose cubs or another animal that they're close to. But we look at that as being an animal instinct when it's them doing it, and I don't really see why we need to or would be really justified in over-extrapolating out from when we do that and saying that we've keyed in on some deeply intrinsic moral law of the universe.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I think – and like, I mean I don't know how far we am going to go down this because this really is going to come up a lot more talking about your position and Nicholas's position, but I think um, – one of the problems, and I pointed this out to you just in our in our private conversations, basically, um, I think the the fundamental problem of all subjectivist versions is that they're they're existentially impossible um, they you can't live it you know either way. so you know whether whether you're saying, oh well, you're making it you're making that into a, a quasi absolute well, on the other hand, you're making it into a quasi absolute that you have the right to express your subjectivism and impose on other people because you subjectively like that. I mean, so on either side, you're making a quasi absolute. Um, and then, and then to go, to go even beyond that, when we're talking about, you know, um, I, I, when we're talking about, well, I, I just subjectively don't, I don't like that. It goes against my, it goes against my fundamental nature inherent in that, in that application of my subjectivism say on you for something i'm not saying you're a nazi but on something that i might Thank find or i might find morally repugnant or or, or whatever inherent kind of why does that, he
2: make us call him mein
1: führer <laughs> but it's just the personal in, idiosyncratic eccentricity of mine uh, yeah. oh oh okay uh,
0: um inherent in that is that is the is the assumption that no you actually have the obligation to to adhere to my preference it's not it's not just force it's not so i think if I think if we're really reflective on ourselves, we're not I'm not just saying, well, I'm going to impose this on you whether you like it or not. We're saying I'm going to impose this on you because you really do have an obligation to keep it, and you should know that. Um, we're we're saying you should know that moral fact you should be acting that way not just because i say so and have the power to exert it but you actually you know you you should know that it, it's it's completely a different sentiment than we have uh towards towards general preferences um and and i just think i mean i don't i don't know how to say this without sounding too uh too condescending but i i think that any any honest reflection about our own moral indignation reveals that no the assumption that we have that that feeling that we have that deep-seated feeling isn't just this is my preference that i'm going to impose and you know damn you if you if you don't listen but it really is no 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 i'm imposing what we all should know as true we all have an obligation to know this you really ought to know this so we don't say well the nazis well you know america we just had we had a we had a stronger preference and and a stronger army so we won out um no, we say uh, America and the and the allied uh, the allied powers they they had the moral high ground. They were actually moral in stopping the crimes against humanity. So even when we talk about things like human rights, we're we're saying no. There there are these actual fundamental things that we have that are more and above and beyond preference. So when we have moral indignation, we're not just saying, "Oh, well, you're just doing something I don't like." We're saying, "No, you're you're violating something that you have a real obligation to keep." So I think I think trying to trying to to wiggle out of it through that that subjectivist preference um, just really doesn't do. I, I just don't think it's adequate to the situation. And I think on either side, it's just existentially unlivable. You you can't you can't live as if it actually is subjective preference you have to live as if there are moral objective uh, values and facts there's just okay. the, it, it's impossible to live otherwise
2: okay um i think we might leave that that conversation there after all this is tyler's episode <laughs> I, yeah, that's I don't good think point. it's a well i don't think it's a bad give, thing that give I give me the him soapbox have, uh, yeah I don't think it's a bad thing that he has the last say there um because we will continue to to um to come up against this I think as we go through our uh theories and epistemologies so so we can now move on to into what this episode. Um, after that preliminary discussion what this episode is going to be about beginning with contextualized morality which is where tyler left off last time and i suppose we really haven't moved anywhere from where tyler left off last time
1: (laughs) nor will we damn it
0: (laughs) we'll be here for days um okay so going into contextualized morals so um, it seems to me and to, to many moral philosophers that in in the same way that Um, Background information is vital to determining probabilities. It's also vital in determining moral duties. So um, we might say something like um, the unjustified killing of human life is immoral. Uh, But what does that mean for the husband who wants to avenge the man who murdered his wife as compared to the judge who has the legal right to sentence the man to the death penalty, right? The moral value might be absolute. So it might be absolutely true. That the unjustified killing of human life is immoral, but then we start getting into a kind of applied ethics situations where we say, well, uh, you know, does the man have the same moral right to um, to avenge his wife's death as say the judge does to the 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 murderer who's been um, who's been convicted uh, and standing trial and has been found guilty and is now up for sentencing? Right, the moral value might be absolute but the question is do all people stand in the same obligatory relationship to that moral value so i'm i'm not here arguing that capital punishment is is moral i actually don't think it's moral in most cases um but the the question is you Agreed. know do do we recognize that the judge stands in a different moral situation to the death of that criminal that the right. husband does right yeah. so so that that so contextualized morals, isn't the same thing as subjective morals. They can still be, uh, they can still be objective, even absolute in certain cases. um, uh, but we might stand in different relationships depending on our context. Um, yep. th- not that I want to go into that now, but I think that that's one of the major differences between, um, say human moral responsibility and God's moral responsibility, but we can set that aside for now. Um, so, um, <laughs> Again, we can think of. I, I think the example I gave um, was the the Nazis come into your door um, while the Jews are hiding in the attic, right? So you know um, we might say that in general lying is you know for for is, is not preferred, but in some cases you have a moral obligation to lie. I think you have a moral obligation to lie to protect the Jews hiding in your attic. Um, so I think that that is a moral obligation. We could talk about um, how motives how motives go into it. So, you know, lying for your own self gain might be the type of lies that we say, "Oh, well, those are the immoral ones." Lying for you know the protection of the life or or, or well being of another um, might be morally justified. We can talk about things. Like-
2: this, this might this might be slightly, I guess, uh, maybe a juvenile question or a sophomore question. But um, uh, so what about if your if your um if you're lying to to the SS guards who are looking for the Jews in your attic because the Jews owe you money and you want to collect, right? So you lie for that reason rather than lying to protect them.
0: Yeah, so... Um I didn't actually have this in in any of my notes I don't think. Um now I'm trying to remember. I don't think it comes up, but um a lot of times people and this is kind of a roundabout way to answer it. A lot of times people will try to object to objective moral values by by giving uh moral dilemmas. So there's, you know, the trolley dilemma uh where you know the trolley is barreling down the road and and the, you can either stop the trolley but you'll kill everyone on it. Or you don't stop the trolley and it'll run into, you know, your brother or something like that. Do, do you stop the trolley? And I'll say, see, no objective value, no objective morality. There's, there's, it's, it's a lose-lose situation. There's no such thing. But I think the moral dilemma actually shows that there's objective moral values. It's just that there's a clash of two objective moral values where you're not in a position to pick a winning side. So that there, there's just, there's no good way out but you recognize, I really have a moral obligation to save the people on the train. And I really have a moral obligation to save the people who the train will hit. I'm just not in a position to actualize both. Um, so I think that when, when you're, like your question, um, when we're talking about motives, I think what we're recognizing is this person has a moral obligation to not be selfish uh, about these the Jews that owe him money, but he also has a moral obligation to keep them safe because it's good to keep them safe, um, and so I, I think it's one of those moral dilemmas. I'm not sure I have a great answer for it, uh, but I actually think the situation itself kind of demonstrates the case.
2: Right. I I, I remember you bringing I that up actually a, a while ago. He, <laughs> he was, was a <laughs> he
0: was a he was a prick. It, occasionally, pricks can do good things too. It's you know what Christians call common grace. <laughs> um. <laughs> So so talking about intentionality, though, it's, it's good that you bring it up because talking about intentionality is, is a part of it. So um, we can think of, uh, of people that do good actions, but they do it for wrong motives. Um, so we can imagine three really wealthy people giving the same amount of money to the same charity. And one of them gives freely from his wealth with no ulterior motives just because it's the good thing to do. Um, one of them gives freely, but he only does it because he wants to look charitable. Uh, because maybe he's planning on running for mayor in the next election, and another one gives because, but he does it by coercion, maybe of his board of trustees, who if he doesn't, they're going to expose him for some heinous act that he chose uh, that he did, and so he so he chooses to just to just go with the board of trustees. Um, now, now which one of them is doing the moral action? Right. So the question comes down to motives. Um, again, not to bring too much Bible in, but this is actually one of the, the, the major themes in, say, the Sermon on the Mount, where it's, you know, when, when you pray, you should do it because it's the right thing to do. Go in a closet. You're not there to try to look all, all great in front of everybody. You should be doing it because it's the good thing to do. When you give yep. alms, you know, don't ring your bell about it. Don't tell everyone, hey, I'm giving to the poor. You should give mm-hmm. the poor because it's the right thing to do. Um so intentionality is is one of the things so um uh, moral philosophers have always talked about there there's uh, uh right action right time right motive right. Um, so the, the common example given is the, the husband, um, having sexual, um, relations with his wife. Um, you know, he, he can do it at the, the right time, but for the wrong motivations. Um, it, so it can be a good action or he can do it at the wrong time where it's, where it's medically unsafe for him to do so. So, and that wouldn't be a moral action, even if he's doing it with the right intentions and it's a good act in general, the wrong time can actually make it, um, an immoral action. So when we talk about those types of things that go into contextualized morals. Um, at at this point, do, do you have any questions about that before I move on to the next?
2: No, no I'd Good,
0: yep. okay. The next one is um somewhat of an aside, but not completely. Um, and so this, I, I'm going to present the moral argument for God. Um, and if you remember from the first time we recorded it, I'm not actually doing this to prove God. Um, I I'm using it to show um. Um how we can inductively um, we can we can come to inductive or or even abductive arguments to the best explanation um so a lot of times people um will will say okay well you've proven objective moral values but um, you know, it, you're, it's because you're presupposing God or, you're, you know, any kind of, things like that. Um, so I, this is just to introduce um, God as the basis for objective moral values and duties. It, it's not to show, the, you know, a God-did-it kind of presupposition. So the basic argument is, uh, premise one, if God does not exist, then objective moral values and duties would not exist. Premise two, objective moral values and duties do exist. Premise three, or conclusion, therefore God exists. The the basic form of it is what's called a modus tollens, or or negating the consequence, um, which means that that negates the antecedent. So um, a really simple example would be: If I have a cat, then I have a mammal. I don't have a mammal, therefore I don't have a cat. Right? If you deny the consequent, the antecedent is is absolutely impossible. So you can only the only way you can oppose this type of argument is to reject either one or both of the premises right? The the syllogism is valid, so you have to reject one. But in order to deny premise one, you have to be able to provide another adequate basis for objective moral values and duties, which I don't think has happened so far. So, um, you know, people like Sam Harris who want to say, okay, there are objective moral values, um, but I'm going to give another basis. He tries to give a natural basis for it. What he ends up doing is actually uh, basically arguing for subjectivism, which is kind of ironic. Um, So... In, or, in order to deny premise one, you have to say, well, no, it's not true, because there could be objective moral values and duties on a different basis. So far, I don't think anyone's been able to do it. Um, and, and a lot of moral philosophers have admitted, yeah, they're still trying, but you know, there, there hasn't really been a, a good natural basis for it. Or you can try to deny premise two, which uh, is basically nihilism um, or some form of subjectivism. Um, but in that case, we have to decide what's more plausible right is it is it more plausible uh, that objective moral values and duties do exist which is uh, consistent with our entire universal experience or the negation of premise 1 right does that does that kind of make sense yep so you have to say it's either more plausible that there aren't objective moral values and duties or it's more plausible that there is no god so which one do you have more evidence for it seems to me that we have way more evidence for objective moral values and duties because it's consistent with our universal human experience, um, as we talked about from the assumption of of objective morality. So we might say that rape is wrong, right? That, That premise two is true, that rape is wrong, is more obviously true than that God doesn't exist or that P1 is false, right? Which would be the basis for rejecting moral objectivity. So the question is, are we more sure that God doesn't exist or that it's wrong to rape people or that it's wrong to torture people for the sheer fun of it. And it seems to me that in order to deny that God exists, you have to be willing to deny that it's actually wrong to torture people for the hell of it, right? And that to me just seems, uh, that type of implausibility seems uh, just too far beyond rational. So the the quote I, I like is from the atheistic philosopher Kai Nielsen. Um, And he says, quote, we have not been able to show that reason requires the moral point of view or that all really rational persons unhoodwinked by myth or ideology. Basically what he means by religion need not be individual egoists or classical amoralists. Reason doesn't decide here. The picture I have painted for you is not a pleasant one. Reflection on it depresses me. Pure practical reason, even with good a good knowledge of the facts, will not take you to immor- to morality. End quote. Um, and I, I think basically what he's saying is, uh, based on based on reason or or without without there there's no there's no there's no path from from sheer reason, practical reason, good knowledge of the world around you that's going to take you to moral facts. Um, so so um, there, th- that basically he's affirming premise one almost um i also want to differentiate between moral ontology and moral epistemology again we've talked about it before but this is where the conflation normally happens in objections to the argument so skeptics often they'll think that the argument is stating that without religious belief it's impossible to be good so they'll take premise one as saying without belief in god it's impossible for us to act morally or in accord with moral duties but that's not the argument, right? That's what we talked about in the, in the very first part of last time. So that the 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 argument is actually um, the argument would actually support why even atheists can be good apart from belief in God, which is because there are objective moral facts in the universe and that we all assent to them. We all live in a theistic universe, whether or not we believe it. So there are moral facts in the same way that there's natural facts. So that the fact that an atheist can be good. Is actually evidenced against their own atheism. So basically, if naturalism were true, then nobody would—we wouldn't even have a concept of good, uh, because goodness wouldn't—it wouldn't exist. It wouldn't be a—it wouldn't be a fact in nature. There, there wouldn't be any moral features of nature for us to even discuss.
2: Well, do you think it would be more like the lions that they don't seem to have a concept of good, right?
0: right so we might we might um we might in an atheistic or naturalistic universe um we might have sheer pragmatism um we might have sheer animal instinct but i don't think um there's any reason to think that we would have anything like um our moral reflection on or or concepts of of ultimate goodness
1: i tend to think that there's good reason to think that we would i mean you know study after study after study it's almost boring to point out that human beings are commonly regarded as selfish little critters. And if you have the sort of animal that's capable of abstractions and rationalizations while also having its own uh, built-in desires and preferences that are part and parcel with its evolutionary adaptive history, I can't really see how you would wind up with an animal that didn't spin tall yarns about how the very fabric of reality was woven such that the things which made it happier are the things that are good, and the things that tend to make it sadder or tend to even kill it off or leave open the very easy possibility of its being killed off are bad. And to me, the two worlds we're describing are indistinguishable from one another so as as much as you're going to hate this that that is
0: um very very sam Harrisian of you <laughs> it, that that's basically his argument that the the what we call good are just things that lead to human flourishing um things that we uh have come to like or prefer um so on and so forth. The problem with that is that it just besides that it just equivocates on what good it is um is it is it really just begs the question it says well what is good is what is human flourishing, and human flourishing is good, right? It just it just kind of sneaks it in through the back door. Well, See where human...
1: I stop short of being like Sam Harris is. He approaches the is ought problem and says, "I get it. Is is ought," and I say, <laughs> "No." Yeah, but you're
0: but you're still kind of going there. You're you're still you're still. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. From from what I heard, and maybe Nicholas, you can clarify if you if you heard it different. It still basically was if you have you know reflective species that come around to it they're going to come around to the to the conclusion that is is odd
1: they might reach that conclusion but i don't think they've hit upon any kind of metaphysical important reality they're just engaging in kind of retroactive justification for you know why their preferences ought to be i guess not even retroactive they're really engaging more in kind of uh i can't think of the word I'll run with rationalization for right now. They're engaging in a form of rationalization about why, what they want and like really is good. In a kind of, uh, they do cheat and kind of slip into that external, objective, metaphysical mode. That sliding from isness into oughthood, and I say I stop short of of that. I have a different solution to the is ought problem that does not really require saying, well, what is just is what's good. But I I see where Sam Harris does that. Does that make it any clearer? I'm just saying that they, it doesn't surprise me that you would have animals who attempt to justify the world as they see it and go so far as to make universal metaphysical claims predicated on their subjective points of view. That doesn't surprise me. Uh, I don't stretch my subjective point of view out into the metaphysical, though. That's where I think, you know, the species went wrong, so to speak.
0: Yeah, so, but this is where we're going to get back into, um, th- back into that. Well, it, it takes, you have to be able to, to didn't, so the, the moral argument, the objection is basically the one who wants to affirm objective moral values, but deny God as the basis. Whereas you're coming from a different place and you're denying premise two. You're not denying premise one. You're denying premise two. So I'm addressing the person who says, no, 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 no. We can have premise two, but we don't need premise one.
1: Okay. Yeah, in that case. You you know what I'm saying? Yeah, that's
0: not. So so then, but I would come back to you, and this will come up again when you do your presentation. This will come up again, whereas um, in order for you to to deny premise two, you actually have to – and and this is going to go into epistemolo- epistemological assumptions that I have. Um, you're you're going to go into well, you actually need to disprove common sense. Um, so I'm not one of those people that says common sense is infallible. Uh, there's obviously lots of instances in history where common sense is, um, has been disproven. So I'm a not few. saying it's infallible. But yeah, there's there's been there's been more than a few. There's been there's been um, there's been enough. Um, like two, three. But three. I I am going to say the the burden <laughs> of proof lies on the person that wants to go against common common sense. Right? So so we have we have justified belief to accept our common sense. But the person who wants to go back and says no 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 no, no that's actually wrong needs to be the one that has the burden of proof and shows why common sense is wrong. Does that make sense? So so for me we have universal um, moral experience of moral facts. Even, and, and we'll talk about, I've talked about this before, we'll talk about when we get to yours, I think even because it's existentially impossible to live as a subjectivist, uh, I think even the subjectivist, even the nihilist, when they're out of the ivory tower, when they're not talking about these things, have the assumption of objective moral values. So, so even those people have the assumption of objective moral values. They assume premise two. Because it's the only livable option. So the, in order to deny premise 2, you actually can't just say, well, it's possible that maybe we turn we, we, you know we're building uh, castles out of straw when we're having this type of moral inflection. You actually have to prove no no, no no, These, this is exactly where it came from. These really are subjective morals, they really aren't objective morals. And I'm not sure that, that, that you can even come close to proving that.
1: Uh, you, in thirty minutes, no. <laughs> I, yeah, no. I I I see what you're saying. Um, and I
0: think I think we should leave it there I, for now. I, I, I personally think like gonna I should wait till we're,
1: actually, till we're actually. Yeah, I was. I was. I think we should probably wait. or I should wait on answering that until we're doing mine, so I don't keep yeah. eating chunks of time. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so.
2: we we could do that. I I almost feel like Lloyd um where Harry's on the back of the scooter and they're driving into Aspen and he has to use the toilet and <laughs> and Lloyd just says just do it man <laughs>
0: just go <laughs> just go
2: and uh, i i kind of almost feel like that <laughs> that i just want you guys to just go at it but um well
0: it, it it'll come up it'll come up the entire next recording i i promise you because this really is the 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 defining feature yeah. between Brandon and myself so it it'll it'll yep. come up a lot when we're talking about his yeah
2: okay all right. Um, so, so I don't know if you had any uh, final comments on that, Tyler, or if you wanted to move into divine command theory.
0: Um, no, we can move into, uh, well, the Euthyphro Dilemma first. Okay. So at this point, um, there's a common skeptical objection um, coming all the way out of Plato's dialogues where Socrates is having this discussion about piety with Euthyphro, right? At first, Euthyphro says that, the pi- that, that what is pious is whatever is loved by the gods, Um, And Socrates points out that that can't be right because the Greek pantheon of gods, um, the gods often disagree in their affections. So Euthyphro kind of backpedals and he refines his answer and he says, ah, well, um, what is piety is is what all the gods are unanimous on. Um, And it's at this point that Socrates formulates the the dilemma called the Euthyphro Dilemma. And he asks, do the gods love the pious because it's pious or is it pious because the gods love it? um so first we should recognize that the youth of road dilemma actually comes to us mixed right it's not that that is it's 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 altered to fit our monotheistic understanding of God, right? That that concept of piety and the gods and unanimous that just doesn't make sense in our monotheistic cultures anymore. Right. So it comes to us a little w- bit. Changed. Would
2: you like to give? Would you like to give the uh, contemporary version yeah. of that?
0: Yeah. So the new one that that you know is is really common in, in skeptical arguments is um it is is the good good because God commands it, or does God command it because it's good? Right. Right. So. The first option, it, it, does God command it because it's good, is basically saying, well, then God isn't the standard of good. There's there's external good that God submits to, right? So so God isn't the basis for morality. The other option, or, or so the dilemma posits, is that the good is only be good is only good because God commands it. That that is that morality is arbitrary. God could have commanded that rape would be good, and then we'd be like, hey, rape is good. We'd all be those rapeoids on Andromeda. Right. So so though that that's the the common dilemma and it's thought of that, that that's a real that's a real zinger for theists. There's no way out. You're stuck. Uh, You know, therefore, God's not the basis. Or if he is, then then morality is completely arbitrary and there's no such thing as objective moralities. So um, the idea is you you can't really accept both of those things. You got it. You got to get your way out. So to me, there's there's two ways out. Right, because any a dilemma is only a dilemma if there's no if there's no real ways out. This one's the false dilemma. I think there's ways to split the horns. Um, there, there's the secret option, which I'm not sure is novel to me, but I haven't really read it much. Is that even if even if premise two is true, right? That even if uh, God, even if what is good is only good because God commands it, that doesn't lead to arbitrariness. Right So that'd be like saying that it that it it's arbitrary whether or not I choose to eat dinner um or whether I choose not to eat dinner right because because I could choose either way, so therefore it's arbitrary right There could be all kinds of factors that lead into why I chose it, so I'm not sure that that even if we accept option two that it leads to arbitrariness wouldn't um, that be
1: but, roughly the same sort of equivocation that we we talked derisively of earlier though where Good is equivocated with God's nature, and God's nature is good because it's good, and it's good because yeah. it's God's nature.
0: Yeah, yeah. We'll we'll get to that. We'll get to that. I actually okay. That option is isn't the one I would take. I'm just saying I think that that option's there. People could argue for that. The one that it's I there. think is the best is that is that the the real answer is that God is good, right? It's not based on God's commands. It's based on God's unchanging nature. So um it it's it's neither external to god nor is it arbitrarily based on what god commands is good right so morality isn't based on isn't based on what what it commands it's based on it's based on it it's based on an it's based on ontology so it it's not arbitrary right that, so morality to morality seems
1: is, kind of like biting the bullet of equivocation harder than the other one
0: <laughs> we'll we'll get to that when we talk about the difference between divine command theory and divine sure. attribute theory so, okay. um, so, so in, this, in this instance, we would say that morality is necessarily relational, right? Morality can't exist without persons. Um, there, I can't think of any, any type of moral fact or any type of moral claim that would even make sense without persons, right? So it's just Completely an approximation. Agreed. It's just an approximation, according to Christians, to the internal relationship within the Trinity. Um, it's, so it's an ontological reality. So this is when we get into divine command theory right? What commonly passes for divine command theory among skeptics is not what divine command theory means among theists, or very, very rarely.
2: And being a theologian, I see this all the time, right?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, they forget
2: in front of me, they forget I have a degree in theology, right? They really do. (laughs) It's
1: because you're on our side and we expect you to just give it a (laughs) wink and a nod. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. so, so among a lot of
0: skeptics they say well divine command theory is basically that, that morality is good because God commands it right? Divine command theory um, so whereas most theists are talking about um, moral obligations not moral values um, when we're talking about divine command theory um, most skeptics are talking about moral values they're talking about the good so rape is wrong um, they want to base on divine command theory, whereas, whereas we would say, well, no, it's actually based on God. The divine, com- the the our obligation comes from the command, do not rape. That those are two different things. So there might be moral values that we don't have obligations towards. Um, they only become obligations as commands. Um, the only the only exception that I have been able to find, um, and and the position that actually is the the divine command theory is called uh, Voluntarism. Um, The only person that I can find that actually does it is William of Ockham, where we get Ockham's razor. He actually bites the bullet, and he just accepts the second horn of the Euthyphro Dilemma. he says, no, 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 God could have commanded murder, and then that would have been morally good. Uh, He's the only one I could find, to be honest. The option that most Christians take that I've read, so all of them except for William of Ockham, that I've read on this, so... Augustine, and Aquinas, Robert Adam, Duns Scotus, William Alston, William Link Craig, Alvin Plantinga, Cornelius Van Til, right, on and on and on and on and on. Um, when we talk about divine command theory, we're actually more accurately talking about divine attribute theory, um, which is basically that it's rooted, um, that, that moral values are rooted in God's nature, not in God's commands. So it's rooted in his omnibenevolence, his simplicity. Um, there's even, uh, Glenn Peoples has an episode on the non-moral goodness of God, which if you want to listen to it, you can go go ahead. I'm not sure I really even understood Say it. Say hello
2: to my little friend podcast. <laughs> yeah, the Say hello it's to really my little
0: good. friend. Um, it's a good podcast. Uh, it's called The Non-Moral Goodness of God. Um, I I just don't know if I followed um, his arguments. I, I got to listen to it again. Um, but he argues that that there's a non-moral goodness of God. That, that's the basis. So um, basically... It means that God doesn't adhere to the good, but that God is the good. He is the standard of goodness. So it's not external to himself, and it's not arbitrarily determined by his commands. So it means that moral values are rooted in God, um, and it shows that they're not arbitrary. They're not changeable. It explains why morality is interpersonal, and it allows for a variety of moral duties because we might stand in different moral obligations to those moral values.
2: I mean, when we went through this in in school, uh, the common question was was that who who defi- who decided that that was the standard by which we would measure what is good, right? Right. That it that that was the often the problem that uh, um a lot of students had with this with the divine com- divine command theory. But you're not a divine command theorist, right?
0: No, I'm not. No, I'm right. a divine attribute theorist. Yeah. Right? So we're basing it on God's nature, yeah. Right, which is also one of the reasons why I wanted to go into the 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 moral argument for God. Again, I wasn't trying to prove God, but showing okay well, when we look around the world, we see we we all observe we have this universal experience of moral facts. Then we need to come up to the best explanation, uh, either an inductive or abductive reason for it. Well, what are the possible explanations that we have? Well, naturalistic theories have all failed. Um, then we get to theistic theories. Well when you get into theistic theories, the command theories fail. So what do we what do we end up with? We end up with um with attribute theory of, of an omnibenevolent God where moral values are based on God's nature. Right. So again, I'm 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 not just assuming this as as many people are accused of. Oh, we're we just assuming it's God. No, there actually is a chain of reasoning. We're we're going through some abductive reasoning to eliminate options and come with the best explanation of the moral facts that we observe in the world around us. Um uh, an an objection normally or not normally, I haven't actually seen it that much, that Christians also give to this is that there's a parallel of the Youth of Road dilemma for atheism. Um so there's the Youth of Road dilemma against atheism. And this is actually it's it's not a response, so you know, Brandon, I don't know if you wanna you wanna turn off your headsets or whatever, this isn't a response to <laughs> any type of any type of nihilism or subjectivist viewpoint, it's really, it, it only makes sense if someone is, is trying to defend objective moral values from a naturalistic framework. Um, so they can't actually halt the infinite regress anywhere. So whereas Christians would halt it on the immutable, unchanging nature of God, there's nothing like that in atheism. So, so for the moral realist, at some point, there's, there's got to be a stopping point where there is the good. So, so, what would they say if the theist asked them if the good is good because it creates the good, or is it good because it adheres to some good beyond itself right and in those cases, we would have the exact same dilemma right um, we we would We would have no stopping point for what this um, naturalistic ultimate good would be well um, i I think I talked last time about just. What it, even, what it would even mean for something like justice to exist. So for there to be a basis for just action, there is, is the good of justice. What does that even mean if, there, if there's no, like, what is that? Can that be a stopping point? Um, we don't even know. I don't even know what that means for justice to just exist. I know what just actions are, just people are. Uh, I don't know what, what justice is ontologically in and of itself. Um, I don't know if that's a, a meaningful concept. So in addition to this, and, and I'm sure we're gonna expand on this once we reach um, especially Brandon's positions or, or um, Nicholas' positions, um, I'm, I'm not really sure, um, like I said, that, that they're coherent. Um, so if all moral realists necessarily come um, to say uh, that the ultimate good really exists, it just seems that it has to be a person who's the standard Right Because morality is a personal thing, as we've said there it can't just be justice kind of free floating um, just to give an example, again, I don't want to go into the the, the Kalam cosmological argument, but this is somewhat similar to that, so um, the conclusion of of the Kalam isn't that God exists right It's
2: just so, that there was a cause
0: it's just that there's a cause, right so all these all we get all kinds of crazy objections to the cosmological mm. argument. When really, they don't need to. There, there's no need to deny causation or, right. or, or reject the principle of sufficient reason, especially when so many people on the one hand will reject principle of sufficient reason and then say, well, no, 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 it was M-theory or strings or it was the law of gravity or whatever. it They're giving causal explanations.
2: Right? You need SPR to give that explanation yeah, so, in the so first why, place.
0: Why deny the principle of sufficient reason when you're going to give a, attempted sufficient reason? But the point of the comparison is to say that, that the Kalam doesn't get you to, to, to God. It just gets you to the cause. So, so the Kalam, when people use the Kalam to get to God, what they're actually doing is they're starting by examining possible candidates, right? So for the Kalam, we might say that since the universe just is the sum total of all space, time, matter, energy that was brought into existence by some cause— Well, what can we say about that cause, that the cause is spaceless, timeless, immaterial, for example, right? Because if the universe is all space and time, whatever caused it has to itself not be space or time, right? So it's spaceless and time. So we can draw these, whether or not that's true inferences, we can draw these types of inferences um, by just examining what we know about the effects, right? So again, I'm I'm not arguing uh, for God as the creator, I'm just drawing the analogy to show that we can draw those inferences uh, based on what we know about moral realism. So if there is the good, which is neither arbitrary nor gains its goodness from some standard external to itself, then what possible candidates do we have? And it seems to me, like I said, that only a person is a viable candidate because morality is necessarily personal. It's interpersonal. But if this person is the standard of goodness, then this person must be perfectly good. That, that is, they have to be omnibenevolent. And this person has to transcend all other persons because they have to be the right type of authority to demand that all other morally aware creatures align with its own being and so on. So what are the possible candidates? So it seems to me that we only have God. This is where I get theistic objective moral realism, right? The, the final kind of, any, any comments about, about that kind of inductive
1: step? Uh, To me, the Euthyro dilemma for atheists seems like the sort of wrangling over abstractions you get when you demand that metaphysics conform upon the universe, the same sort of orderly one-to-one comparison that you find with nouns. We'll label this good and that good. Well, what is good? Well, good's good. But what's the good of good? Well, and then we wind up in Plato's world of forms and... To me, I think once you boil things back down to linguistic employments for various situations, and you look at what could cause us to value those situations, you wind up with rational explanations about what's actually taking place there. Now, that doesn't tell you what you ought to do or how you ought to value, but I think it provides a much clearer picture than this reference to some sort of platonic or neoplatonic forms of the good. But that's just like my off-the-cuff response, I don't—I haven't really uh, boiled it down yet.
0: You might be surprised; you and I agree. Although I have said that I think all sub- all, all non-theistic positions lead to nihilism, so I—I I think you're actually—I think you're right that the that as a nihilist, you can critique the Euthyphro dilemma for atheism and say, well, it doesn't really make sense because it necessarily would lead to these kind of abstractions, you'd have to get into forms and that's kind of the point that I was making that if you want to make a naturalistic basis you're kind of stuck with these I don't think they're coherent abstractions of just what justice is and, and you get into these really meaningless concepts or you have to go into strange kind of platonic forms or, or you, you really just lead into this kind of metaphysical gook that just doesn't really make any sense, right? That's what, that's Unless what you're what, that's taken peyote,
2: in which case it all makes sense, right? <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, well, uh, that's why I've always kind of said <laughs> to me, it seems like it's either theistic objective moralism or nihilism. Um, uh, it just seems to me, and I'll, I'll talk about that in a second. Um, but that's actually the next point. So that's a good segue. Um, the, is that basically, and I don't, I don't want to be overly reductionistic, um, but I think that ultimately there are only actually two options, right? Like I said, objectivism or nihilism. Uh, this is because I think all forms of subjectivism or naturalistic basis um, for objectivism really just dissolve into nihilism. Um, so part of the reason why I accept theistic objective moral realism is because I think that the only alternative uh, to it is is wrong uh, and a complete disharmony with the world as we observe it, right? I, I think it's it's as wrong as those metaphysical positions which deny the existence of the real world or or, or say that we're just brain vats or we're living in uh, a matrix or we're, you know, Boltzmann's brains or anything like that. I just think nihilism is, is basically as false as false gets. Um, so if if we're presented with a, a, an actual dichotomy, right, either A or not A, um, then if not A is false, A is necessarily true. And I think that that's the the i think that's the only way um and that the only way out is a, is to show a third alternative, but I don't think that there's a third alternative um I think that that besides theistic objective moral realism that the only alternative that we find is nihilism um and I think that, that this is because almost all appeals to subjectivism confuse moral ontology with moral epistemology. So it might be the case that we come to know that murder is wrong through social pressures, but that doesn't mean that those social pressures pressures are a determinative factor in the moral value, or lack thereof, of murder. So it'd be like saying that because through social pressures we came to observe things scientifically, therefore the nature of what we observe is the result of science. Right. So it's as if saying the Big Bang occurred because we observe it scientifically due to social pressures in the past that caused our society to become scientific. Right. Social consensus doesn't it doesn't make things true. Right. It's just a social analysis of why we came to believe things. So you can imagine if I argued that we all got together and agreed that ants were taller than elephants, then it would be true that ants were taller than elephants right? Or, and this one's really closer to morality, is that, um, that, that perception's not always that great. So imagine that you and I are standing two miles away from a really large object jetting out of the desert, and there's nothing else in view that can scale the object, right? You guess that it's over 500 feet tall. I say that it's less than 500 feet tall. Does our inability from our position to determine its height mean that it doesn't have an actual height, right? that there's no objective answer to the question, is that object over 500 feet tall? Right, so a lot of times people say, oh, well, look at all the differences in moral opinions. Well, just because we have differences of beliefs about moral facts doesn't mean that there aren't actually moral facts. That's a question of moral epistemology, not moral ontology. Or we could say something like, we evolved a moral sense. Well, even if we evolved a, a moral sense, we also evolved a sense of sight, but does that mean that what we observe is a result of our evolution? So as if to say, um, you know, my cat is sitting on the bed next to me is only true because I evolved the sense of sight. Right. That my sense of sight makes that fact true. Well, no, we would say, well, no, there's an objective world out there that we just evolve the ability to perceive. Right. So so coming to naturalistic explanations doesn't seem um, to to really explain objective moral values it just it just explains some type of maybe naturalistic moral epistemology um, so i think I think that ultimately the price tag of rejecting moral objectivism is just way too high um, you You have to come to positions like um, rape uh, or the torture of of innocent human life for
1: the sheer fun of it uh, actually isn't objectively wrong. Um, I, I I'd just like think to, the, the... to butt in on, on that for just a second, simply because I feel it important on behalf of myself and other people who affirm nihilism to point out that our ontological conclusions about the nature of morality does not impact our emotional appraisals of things like rape and torture. Because I think a lot of times nihilists get negative um views from other people simply because uh, we get uh, tied to those big emotional shock and awe style arguments like the Holocaust and rape and murder and and, th- and torture and things like that. Uh, as a nihilist, I am also deeply emotionally uh bothered by those things i despise those things if i lived in world war ii i would happily take up arms to fight the nazis if i saw a rape taking place i would put my life at risk to stop the rape from taking place and i i'm simply i'm not trying to make an argument on saying that i'm simply trying to point out for the sake of myself and any other nihilists who might listen to the podcast or or get in these sorts of conversations nihilism does not automatically equate to someone being Personally, um, I guess I would say volitionally amoral. They might be ontologically amoral, but not actually volitionally amoral and still engage in and value behaviors that we would call moral in kind of a common sense way.
0: Yeah. And, and, well, I actually think that that's that's kind of the point
1: that I made earlier um, where
2: you. Climb down from your ivory tower and then begin to behave like there are objective morals.
1: Exactly. Well, but so, behavior is, of course, different from ontological reality. It doesn't necessitate ontological reality. Is what I would put, you know, in asterisk next to that.
0: But and we'll we'll get into this because I this is this is an area where I'm gonna I'm gonna poke you on is you know why behave that way if it ain't so, um, you know. So a, a common criticism of theism is that it's wish fulfillment um and it seems to me that a, a good criticism of nihilism is that it's wish fulfillment if you want to try to act uh as if things are actually good when you just know it ain't so. Um so I'll I'll poke you on that but I, yeah that is a good point to make that just because someone's a nihilist doesn't mean that they're going to like come up and stab you in the back or anything like that. So it's not that nihilists are bad people. Um right? But I say that because I believe that you know you're an objectively good person. <laughs> so um <laughs> so but I, I think what I was saying is is not that you it's not that you deny that we should have moral behavior um although we'll talk about um why that is, but that that you would actually have to say it's 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 ontologically false to say rape is wrong that 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 that, that is an ontologically false statement um so it's just the, the the devaluation of values is the is the kind of, the kind of common term, and I think that just the cognitive dissonance because I was an atheist and I I you know was a nihilist for a while. Um, the cognitive diff, diff, dissonance for me was just at the most fundamental level, right? There's there's no real morals, but that people really ought to do or abstain from certain really good or really bad things, right? Lewis Vaughn, the atheist philosopher, said in his book The Case for Humanism, right? This is an atheist arguing for human, humanism. Quote. If any moral theory approves of obviously immoral facts, the theory is flawed and must be discarded. If our moral theory sanctions, say, the inflicting of undeserved and unnecessary suffering on innocent children, we must conclude that something is very wrong with that theory. End quote. But the question is, can he justify that from his naturalistic worldview? And I'm not sure that he can. So is, is morality real? Are, are there real moral values? Are some things really actually... Ontologically good or bad, or or do we really have moral obligations, or are all these just really useful fictions? Um, are they kind of just the glue that holds the society together? The the really imaginary glue that holds the society together. Um, are they are they just illusions kind of propagated on sheer will to power, um, or or preferential imperialism? Right. C.S. Lewis wrote in his book The Abolition of Man. He wrote without the aid of trained emotions. The intellect is powerless against the animal organism. I had sooner play cards against a man who was quite skeptical about ethics, but bred to believe that a gentleman does not cheat than against an irreproachable moral philosopher who had been brought up among the shapers in battle. It is not syllogisms that will keep the reluctant nerves and muscles at their post in the third hour of the bombardment, right? See his, his, his message consistently in the abolition of man is that if that message isn't heeded, that civilization, if civilization continues to drink what he calls the poison of subjectivism, that our civilization will become a brave new world. Um, he, he says that basically subjectivism is the master error that will certainly damn our souls and end our species, right? Kind of apocalyptic of him, but he was a an Oxford Don, right? Um, but going into, into you know, nihilism, Nietzsche basically s- predicted that with the death of God, right, literally the death of belief in God—he wasn't making ontological statements about God, he was talking about belief—that with that death of God, we would see the bloodiest century in history, right? That was his prediction, that once people realized that there was the death of God, we didn't need belief, we would see the bloodiest century in human history. And a lot of people, uh, you know, claim Nietzsche as like he was this triumphalistic, yay, death of God, but he was actually really horrified by it. He was really scared. He he was— really worried about the human race walking that precipice between um kind of the the, the traditional beliefs and and the ubermensch the overman that would would come and he, and he didn't know if the humanity would make it right and he was actually right he he um he 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 thought that we would either perish by killing each other or become the overman that which is the perfect expression of the will to power Um, and that's really what we saw. We saw in a lot of cases, the transvaluation of values, um, where, where, what one person or one society desires, um, was just the will to power. It was just the, the strong, um, uh, uh, oppressing or, or just, um, basically acting on their ability to be power and lorded over others, um, what they thought was, was right, right? Um, and and this is this is basically the problem is that some of our desires it seems to me just really are wrong um what what i found so shocking when i first started understanding nietzsche was uh even talking about what uh, is that he misses that the very thing that terrified him about the death of god that is the the loss of dignity and values just is his ubermensch it seems to me that the the only difference between the ubermensch is that they'll know that there are no values and that they'll create their own whereas the death of god which scared him so much is that 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 uh that we were basically living in the dark we didn't know that there that there were no actual values right and that the Ubermensch just is that understanding that there are no values. We have to create our own. We act on the will to power, right? One of his biggest critiques of Christianity wasn't that it was true or false, but that it was the religion of the weak, right? It gave, it gave power to the weak, um, which for a long history was seen as a strength of Christianity. So um, I, I, I just I think that, that nihilism and, and, and Nietzsche's view was just fundamentally wrong. Um, and I and I don't see how it, it's any better. I think it's existentially unlivable um, that once we get out of those ivory towers that we talked about, everybody just runs quickly and reverts back right back to objectivism, which through that inductive process, I think the best explanation is is that God is the basis for objective moral values. So that that's in a brief nutshell, as brief as it can be. Two episodes, two and a half hours. Uh, right. the the argument or the the case for uh, theistic, objective, moral realism.
2: Okay, so, um, Brandon, did you want to have any um, final comments on on what uh, Tyler just said specifically, I guess, about Nietzsche?
1: Uh, I mean, I've got some stuff rattling around in my head, but, I mean, I would want to... uh, Think it out more, yeah, absolutely. clearly before I i mean w- mm-hmm. rather than just shoot from the hip, I'd like to think it out more clearly. I'm always whenever I engage in these sorts of discussions, I'm always a bit reticent to you know put to words because i'm always I'm concerned that people will misunderstand like i I mentioned earlier, the whole point of what I'll call the nihilistic program. I'm gonna divide nihilists into two camps the constructive nihilists and the destructive nihilists. And I'm a constructive nihilist. For me, I start with the idea there are no objective ontological moral facts, save those which we create, and the moment we create them, they do indeed exist, even if in a very contingent uh, way. And so my approach to life is create these values and then uphold them. And among the things that I value most are love, fidelity, friendship, uh, integrity, honor, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's just, and I, I think it's interesting. On a separate subject, style, I think it's interesting that people in my position, because of the prevalence of, uh. I won't even say objective moral assumption. I'll just say the prevalence of philosophical laziness. It's hard to advocate the position of nihilism without having people pigeonhole you as the destructive nihilist, which would be kind of the nihilist that we saw in Russia shortly before the revolution. You know, well, there are no values. So to hell with you and your romantic love and to hell with you and this and that. And in the in the end, they wound up valuing a, a sort of crude reductionism um ironically but it was just interesting kind of side thoughts of mine sorry for getting for trailing off there
0: no, no not and, at
2: all
1: and i think i think we'll get into this when we talk
0: about it but but um again and i this is where i'm going to keep you know kind of poking at your presuppositions and again i i know we'll talk about this a lot when you make the presentation so maybe you can you can think about addressing this when you're doing the presentation is basically that somewhere in there it seems like you're assuming that that uh that constructive nihilism is actually better than destructive, than destructive nihilism.
1: I'm not that there, assuming so there, it that on a metaphysical level. Path. Like I'm not assuming it on a metaphysical level, as in I'm not saying it really is better. It, it's metaphysically, ontologically, over and above the destructive. I'm saying that I personally value it, and I evaluate it as good. I evaluate personally the destructive type as bad so i might use shorthand language and say well constructive is better but it's because it's a lot quicker than me saying well by way of my own evaluations and appraisals of things i value this constructive approach more than the destructive one and so act as to uphold constructive approaches that imbibe the world with values like love and justice which i value i mean that that's a mouthful it's easier for me to say you know i, I find uh, creative nihilism to be better. Right.
0: Yeah. I'll, I'll save um, most of my comments for your, for your presentation. <laughs> okay.
2: Okay. Uh, so I'd just like to, uh, thank you both for your time on, on this and, and that, uh, we'll certainly probably be able to, to, um, engage, uh, more with each other on the Facebook page. Uh, should we get some interesting comments, that, uh, after this comes out? Um, also, uh for anyone uh listening that wants to to comment or uh offer their their um objections or criticisms or support even, um, you can do that at either my email address, which is the skepticsessamate at gmail dot com, or uh at Tyler's blog page, which is um logical theismblogspotcom theism dot blogspot dot com. Is that right?
1: That's right. You can't talk to me.
2: (laughs) Um, Brandon appears on our Facebook page, so I figured that you might uh, get in contact with him that way. Um, But uh, other than that, yeah, that's, that's, uh, I guess, all we have time for for this episode. So, again, thank you for joining me, gentlemen.
1: Thanks Thanks a lot.
2: And uh, until next time, take care out there.